The Anton Savage Show on News Talk. A huge amount of sympathy for uh, Sonia McEntee, who is principal solicitor at Sonia McEntee Solicitors, and facing into what is going to be a very arduous couple of minutes because some of the technicalities, the questions that are coming in, Sonia, are extremely uh, high end. Let's start with one that's relatively simple and then we'll work our way up to the more challenging ones. Can you make a will on your own without a solicitor? Can you just pull out a post-it note, write it down, sign it and be done? No, you can't just pull out a post-it note if I answer that part of your question first. Um, There's nothing in law to say that you have to go to a solicitor to have your will made, but there are many, many good reasons why you should go to a solicitor to have a will made. And it's not an expensive exercise. Maybe it's just important to point that out. Um, Something like 70 or 75 percent of people in Ireland don't have wills made. And and when I hear this question asked, I, I, I often wonder whether one of the reasons they don't have a will made is because they keep meaning to do it at home, but they never quite get round to doing it. Um, so I certainly encourage making an appointment with your solicitor and go and sit but down. But presumably and get the most job people done. look at it and say, I am statistically unlikely to drop dead in the next while, therefore I don't have to rush it. Well, that that is also true, but the reality is that we don't know when that's going to happen. And the next thing is that I, there's, you know, the simplicity around that as well. There's an assumed simplicity that the administration of your estate is going to be very straightforward and very simple. But again, in terms of advice that should be taken and questions that should be asked, we live in a society now where we're no longer all Irish living around here. So there can be implications, you know, that that come from a mixed society that we're living in. Um, our family situations are very different now to what they would have looked like 20 years ago or 40 years ago or 60 years ago. You know, divorce is far more common. Separation without there being divorce is far more common. Being in partnerships without being married, far more common. Children, stepchildren. Oh yeah, and I remember you the last children. time saying that there's yeah. there's all sorts of implications of if you're post-divorce and remarried or not remarried, it changes the well, well, succession well, uh, well, order. A, su- a succession, uh, uh, sorry, a subsequent marriage can invalidate a will that has been made. So, you know, that th- some of those kinds of questions can be pointed out to you. So I suppose a solicitor will interrogate your circumstances. So you can do it, but you shouldn't. Yes, absolutely. All right. We have one asking about illegal, uh, the legality of notice periods in work. Can you ask the solicitor, please, if notice periods are legal in work? I handed in my notice, but I'm being forced to work a 60 day notice period. Now my new job don't want to wait that long. It's like entrapment. Thank you. Well, the first place to go here is the contract. So much, I suppose, of any discussion around law comes back to documents that are in place. This person needs to go back and look at their contract. What do the contract say about notice periods? Because that'll answer the question. Um, It may also be that a typical notice period is 30 days coming out of a job. But as you may progress or be promoted within an organisation, that notice period can be extended. But you'll have been notified of that at the time. But hang on for a minute now, Sonia. My understanding is there are certain things that can be put in the contract that when you bring them to court, the judge says you can stick it, lads, it's not legal. So if I have a contract that precludes me from working for a competitor for, let's say, a two year period, Mm. my understanding is that's unenforced because it's seen as unjust. Is the same not through 60 days? Can no, I not say, no, ah, go away, lads? No, that's not, that's not entirely the case at all. And, and I'd actually step back from the law in answering this question and, and ask this individual about how they want to be perceived both, both by the employer that they're leaving and the employer that they're going to. So the new employer doesn't want to wait is what we've been told in this question. But if I cut short my notice period and just say, I'm off, guys done here, have a new job, what is my new employer going to think of me in terms of when a notice period might come round then? So, you know, these are these are relationships of trust as well. And what's you the know. employer's, the existing employer's recourse? Let us imagine that you just got all precipitous and sent them away. What can they do? 
if you want to get to legal technicalities, if there's a binding contract there which says there's a 60 day notice period to be worked, you are bound to work that 60 days. What's the reality of something yeah, like that being me. done about it? Um, be, well, being done about it. Um, for the, in the vast majority of cases, the reality is that there will be nothing done about that. Um, but think about some of it, where we tend to see employment litigation tends to be with the high paying roles, the senior executives in different organisations. And that is where things like this can become very difficult and can end up in courtroom situations. The other scenario that you mentioned there is a little bit different. You're talking about a non-compete kind of situation. So, so that's a different situation and that can be enforceable too. But those kinds of clauses need to be very carefully drafted and taking account of the type of job that it is, the type of work that you do, the location that you're in, um, a reasonable length of time, all of those kinds of criteria. Interesting question well. in relation to where you said about the wills. Question saying, <laughs> should I bring my wife when I'm making my will or should I do it without her? Now, you can tell me if this is something you have seen happen. I remember talking to a sister a long time ago and they were telling me that not often, but on occasion, they would have couples come in to either deal with contact matters or deal with will matters. And the next day, one half of the couple would come back and say, now, listen, can we change a couple of the bits here because either she or he doesn't know X, Y and Z. So do you bring the wife? Yeah, well, well, I would always meet with clients separately. So you might start out that conversation jointly in the room on what it is, but you'd always take the instruction separately. Um, and and uh, you're looking at me with some shock on your, on your face there at the moment. Um, but, but picture this kind of scenario. And we're also in an era now where we're far more conscious about uh, vulnerability, outside influences, the types of relationships that people are in. So Actually, that's a fine point. If somebody is right, so being coerced. You, you need someone, you need to give someone the opportunity to speak openly and freely. And as the solicitor, you know, we owe our clients that duty as well. So, I mean, that's not the that's not the majority of what we see. Of course, it isn't. Um, but you give people that that opportunity. There are other people who have things in their lives, Anton, that they still haven't disclosed to spouses, and maybe don't want to disclose to spouses. And and those kinds of issues may or may not be relevant to the making of a will. But it's an opportunity for the person to have that discussion with the solicitor as well. And the solicitor client um, relationship is distinct and individualized to each to each spouse. So. You know, if one spouse comes back the next day and says, I want to talk to you again about certain things, well, you sit down and you'll talk to, talk to them again and, you, and you'll see where things will go. And is there any requirement on you to share any of that information with the other party? When you say you, do you mean me, the solicitor? Yeah. Oh, I absolutely won't share the information with the other party. Text saying, um, I'm applying for the fair deal scheme at the moment for my mother, but we don't really qualify for much. If I pay for the nursing home myself, is there a tax refund? That's probably more for a tax consultant rather than you. Well, well, that one actually is reasonably straightforward, um, Anton. I think for lots of solicitors would be dealing with um, the fair the uh, fair deal scheme because there are um, legal aspects to it and, and often charges to be registered over property. Um, the answer to the question is yes, there is uh, tax relief available on nursing home fees that are paid. Um, that You don't get any tax relief, obviously, on what the HSE has contributed. But if there are clawbacks later, you can go back and you can look at it again. So just to say the revenue website, really good information there, very clearly set out, very easy to follow. So if you have that question, maybe just go and have a look there. Keep your receipts is the other. Make sure you have your receipts. You'll need those. Here's one that I, I have a, a personal um, interest in because I'm, I don't get out much. So one of the things I quite enjoy doing is looking at historical maps and you go, oh, look, there used to be a right of way there. And I have a huge urge to go up to somebody and say, excuse me, I want to walk through your garden because I'm legally allowed. So there's a question that says we're selling our house. 
we have a benefit of a right of way, but are told that we should have an easement before we can sell it. Is this correct? All right. So what's the difference between an easement and a right of way? And can I claim rights of way over stuff because I saw it on a map? OK, um, you've added on extra questions. I know, yeah, there we've got the layers. Like, on, yeah. OK, so um, it, it, the language here, I, I suppose, is is maybe the first place to start. Um, an easement is a term that we use in the legal profession to describe several different kinds of rights. So a right of way is one of those kinds of rights. Um, And there's been a huge amount of confusion in this area over the past number of years, which was actually only resolved uh, just over a year ago. But um, for many, many years, um, anyone wanting to sell a house where there was a right of way, the advice was based on conveyancing law and changes to legislation that the right of way was going to have to be registered. So it was going to have to be noted on a land registry folio that you could show that that right of way existed. Previously, rights of way were often um, the the or the use of a right of way was often evidenced through documentation that was compiled with your title deeds over a long period of years. Um, so now this registration process came around, gave, gave rise to a lot of a lot of difficulties and a lot of challenges. So actually, there was a there was a move move back from that um, at the end of 2021. So so I hope this is, goes to answering the actual the first part of the question. Um, the right of way doesn't have to be formally registered in the land registry. However, there does have to be evidence. So, and again, this is part of the work that your solicitor will do with your property. The solicitor will ensure that there is sufficient evidence of the existence of that right of way so that you can use it. Because if there's something that no one wants, not you, and most certainly not your solicitor, we don't want a landlocked property that you can't access. But if I can whip out a load of maps and say, look, there's evidence of it and um, there's a picture of a horse and all the rest. There may be lots of historical interests and and you may need to go back in time looking at this. Now, what about my desire to trespass based on what I've seen on historical maps? Trespass where though? <laughs> but you know, you can. There are loads of places where you look and you say, "Ah, look, there used to be a path between here and there. Now yeah. there is a, either a private park or somebody's put a house up. Have I any rights to say, look, you have put a fence where I used to be able to walk? Theoretically, if I were two hundred years old, I want to go back and walk there again. Well, if you felt that you were going to take a very hard line in terms of asserting your rights, I'd certainly go and do your homework uh, first. Yeah, before before just turning up on somebody's property Fine, to assert then. those rights. Quick one before we go. My gym is undertaking refurbishment of premises, causing reduction of classes, closure of swimming pool, closure of restaurant and reduced tennis court among other things. No concessions have been given to members for this reduction and disruption of services. What legal rights do club members have in these circumstances and during this time they have also wait for it, increased membership fees and begun charging an extra fee for reformer pilates, adding insult to injury. Well, like the employment law question a few minutes ago, the place to go here is the contract. You might think, I don't have a contract with my gym. There were terms and conditions when you signed up. Absolutely. So that's where you need to go uh, to look at, to look in relation to this. So you may have got something by email, by text message, by whatever it is. And if you haven't got it, go and ask the gym. What are the terms and conditions of the membership? What you might find written in there is... Um, if we have to refurbish, if we have to reduce levels of services, you know, that there's no reduction. Of it, that may be written in there. And in those circumstances, there may be very little that you can do. But the reality is that you are there, obviously, to avail of a certain level of service and a certain level of access. And if that's being denied, I'd certainly be going to look at the terms and conditions and, and then approach. Them. I sort of know the answer to this as I ask it, but Beckett, I'll do it anyway. You know, when you get one of those boilerplate, everybody gets the same standard contract terms and conditions at the outset. Is it ever worth saying, look, Look, uh, can we change item 7.3.2 to read the following and agree it between us because I don't like that condition? Um, 
I always encourage people to ask. <laughs> always encourage people to ask. You say no in the nicest but, way. But then I will say to them, the chances of achieving that might be very unlikely. Um, could you ask Sonia her advice on assigning assets to children in a will? I'm trying to decide, does my will say all assets split evenly based on valuation at the time of death or do I value the assets now and assign them as evenly as I can? I think there's an easy way to deal with this and, and that's to have a very broadly drafted will which essentially divides on a percentage basis. So whatever, because your estate... Percentage be, of valuation at the time. Well, percentage of value, yeah, because you don't even know now, you don't know today what your estate is going to consist of at the time of your death. You may have bought more property, you may have lost your shirt on investment markets, it doesn't matter. So you don't know what it is. So if you want to divide an estate equally amongst children, the way to go is to consider percentage basis. All of my estate divided equally four ways, three three ways, whatever number of ways it happens to be. Fair place on you, you can have the rest of the day off. Thank, Thank you. you very much Thank for coming you. in this morning. That is Sonia McEntee, who is Principal Solicitor at Sonia McEntee Solicitors and of course Chair of the Law Society's PR Committee as well. The Anton Savage Show, Saturday morning at 9 on News Talk.